0: This is our fifth week in Romans chapter 1, and we've been considering the wrath of God. In short, the wrath of God is toward everyone, because everyone has suppressed the truth in ungodliness and in unrighteousness. It's helpful to get the specifics from the text, because I grew up uh, where when you heard about the wrath of God, it was just sort of this um, terrifying thing that didn't have many details that went with it, so I was just kind of scared of it. And there were times even as a Christian where I wasn't really sure, am I I getting that? Am I not getting that? Do I understand what that is? And so what we see in Romans 1 in these five weeks that we spent there is the wrath of God is ultimately towards everyone because everyone has suppressed the truth and ungodliness and unrighteousness. That's why everyone needs the gospel. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome. He's never been there. He took no part in planting this church, but he's eager to get there to preach the gospel to everyone. Not just to the Jews, not just to the Gentiles, not just to the lost people, not just to the saved people, but to all people because all people need the gospel. What we found is that God has revealed himself to all created beings through his creation. So when we read the creation account, we can read it in a sense where we're reading the way that God wants himself to be known to his creation. And what's happened is he's revealed himself through creation is that rather than acknowledging and honoring God... We've made an exchange known as idolatry where we worship creation instead of our creator. What we found last week was that the present reality of God's wrath is in giving sinners up to that which they really want. Sometimes we think of God's wrath as sort of a heavy-handed God who smites sinners throwing thunderbolts. But what we found last week is something maybe more terrifying where God gives them up, opens his hand, lets them go to the things that they truly want and desire. We considered in an illustration last week that we're going to use this morning that we're like a boat in a raging river and God is holding the tether that keeps us from being swept up by death and destruction. And what we see is that God either holds that tether for those who are in Christ and they get no wrath from God, they get forgiveness because wrath was put on Christ or the present operation of God's wrath is him letting go Giving over the unrepentant sinner to unrepentant sin. Today's focus is on God giving them up to dishonorable passions. That's the title of our sermon, giving them up to the dishonorable passions. Look with me at Romans 1. We're going to start in 25 because it connects to 26 with a bunch of these therefores that we always have to ask, what's the therefore therefore. Last week, we consider 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, and this is an important connection, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, this is our focus today, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women, exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. I hope you remember what I read when we started off the service, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof and correction and training and righteousness, that we would be equipped to do what God calls us to. And this is all scripture. This is part of that. God breathed this out so that we would have it and know how to move within this topic of homosexuality. Our definition that we're going to work from this morning, I want, my goal this morning is that it is really, really clear. We don't need a lot of conjecture. We don't need a lot of Um, this opinion and that opinion. We'll consider some things that we hear from our culture, but we're going to do it in light of the text. So the definition that we're going to work from this morning, go ahead and put that definition up. Just, you know, yeah, there we go. That's fantastic. I was going to say, if we don't have the definition, we're not off to a good start. Um, The definition is this. This is straight out of the text that we just read. Homosexuality is a dishonorable passion which is contrary to nature, It's the result of idolatry. That's a very biblical definition from our text this morning of what homosexuality is. And we're going to unpack this definition throughout the course of this morning. So I want you to write it down in your notes. Um, We're going to have a lot of slides this morning. It might be kind of weird, but feel free to take a picture of it with your phone. Then you can have the notes because they're all going to be on the slides this morning. Um, Homosexuality is a dishonorable passion which is contrary to nature. That's the result of idolatry. Our culture's view of homosexuality is trumpeted loudly in the media and through entertainment as a very viable alternative to God's design. One that should not only be embraced, but maybe even encouraged if you listen closely. This scripture that we're considering this morning is vitally important for us in standing firmly in the truth and retaining a biblical worldview while having a biblical definition of homosexuality. A dishonorable passion, which is contrary to nature, that's the result of idolatry. I want us to utilize an illustration to work through our definition from the text. So let's go ahead and put up that next slide. And it's the umbrella of idolatry, is what we're going to be working with this morning. Because what I want us to see is that homosexuality falls under the umbrella of idolatry. Idolatry is the cause of it an exchange has already happened in the heart to cause one to accept it what this means is that we've that homosexuality isn't something that might cause idolatry something has already happened in the heart and so everything we're talking about this morning falls under this umbrella of idolatry and what we're going to see is an exchange go ahead and put that next slide up we're going to see truth and lie An exchange made between one and the other. We've spoken in general so far in Romans 1 of the exchanging of the truth for a lie. But today we're going to look at the exact truths, at least a few of them, at least three of them. And the exact lies that they were exchanged for. What was the idolatry? What happened? What exchange took place that that affected the heart that caused one or humanity to embrace homosexuality? So we've spoken in general this morning. We're going to be very specific because this gets to the heart of homosexuality and why it is considered biblically dishonorable and unnatural. So look at our first truth. The first truth is this. God is our creator. That's the first truth. And you, can, you kind of get a hint of that in this text as we're reading because we see things being called natural and unnatural, honorable, dishonorable. We see an exchange that has been made. And this first truth is that God is our creator. I want you to turn to Genesis 1. Keep your finger in Romans but turn over to Genesis 1 because I want us to see this very clearly we all have a beginning this world has a beginning humanity has a beginning and in Genesis 1 we learn about it look at one twenty six. God is our creator it says this Genesis 1.26 then God said let us make man in our image after our likeness And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the birds of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what we see here is we, man and woman, are created in the image of God, and then we're given something that's called the cultural mandate. You want know, me to write that down, the cultural mandate, which here is be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. I created you in this way, and what I want you to do being created in this way is to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. Now look over in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called, every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Something was missing. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this is at last, this at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is the first time in human history that we see love poetry. That's what this is right here. You can hear Etta James, at last my loves come along. I mean, that's what this is. It is love poetry. He sees the woman and he says, this at last. Finally, on of my bones, flesh in my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And look at what it says in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So there's this picture of creation, this picture of what happened with man and woman, this picture of man sharing love poetry because that is a very fitting response. And then, therefore, you, we see precedent here a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Now turn back to Romans 1. What we saw is that an exchange took place. This is a humankind exchange, an exchange that wasn't just done by a few, but this was an exchange made by humankind. And it's an exchange where we exchange this truth for a lie. The truth is that God is our creator. The lie is God is not our creator, which comes in a lot of different forms. It might come in the form of there is no God, which at that point he would not be the creator, or I'm going to create the version of God that I want to create. What we have to remember is that our version of God, if not the biblical version, is just an idol like every other idol. I remember reading some things about God one time when I was a little younger and I didn't really like what I was reading. It didn't make sense to me. And I simply said, not my God. My God would never do that. Only to realize I was talking about an idol. Our our own version of God tweaking the details to make him what we want is blatant idolatry. So the lie is that God is not our creator or there is no God or I'll make God into that which I prefer. This is why homosexuality is dishonorable. This is where the doors are opened for dishonorable passions. Remember our our definition, this dishonorable passion. This is where the doors become open to dishonorable passions. Honor belongs to God as our creator. But when you trade that for no God, or you trade that for a different version of God, then you dishonor your creator, and you are thereby guilty and deserving of dishonor. The original language actually indicates that such passions are degrading, the passions that come with this exchange are shameful. So what I want us to see here, I mean, with this picture of God giving people over to their sin in wrath, what I want us to see here is the exchange that's already been made by the individual where they have truth and they let go of truth to grab on to a lie. I want, it might be obvious, but when this exchange is made, you're letting go of truth and you're grabbing on to a lie. This is a terrifying exchange. It brings us to our second truth. are keeping this as simple as possible. The first truth is God is our creator. So the second truth is our creator says what's natural. What's natural? Well, if we have a creator, what does our creator say? Our creator says what's natural. Remember back in Genesis 1, we see precedent. We see him create the man. It's not good that he's alone. What's a good solution to that loneliness? Something that, this complementarian grouping together, what, what, what's a good solution? Well, woman. And what precedence is that set? Therefore, it's fitting that a man will leave his mom and dad and cleave to his wife. We see precedent set here. Our creation, creator, through creation, establishes what's natural. The lie, then, is, I say what's natural. I say what's natural. One of the main arguments of homosexuality in our culture is I was born this way. This is natural. I was born this way. God accepts me as I am. One scholar responds, humanity is no longer how it was created. Everybody was born in a sinful way, conceived in iniquity and brought forth in sin. So not only does that argument not work for one part of idolatrous people. It doesn't work for any idolatrous people. Humanity is no longer how it was created. Sin has radically changed humanity. The image of God in society is not only marred, but it has left humanity as a prisoner of Satan. God does not accept us as we are. No one can say, I was born like this, so God accepts me as I am. Why can't you? God doesn't accept us as we are. He calls all of us to repentance of all sin not just a particular one and without this repentance we remain alienated from him forever alienated forever if we if we sit with that lie that that this is i say what's natural and we don't want to change we remain alienated forever so whether or not you specifically struggle with homosexuality this morning doesn't really matter you're a human being and this is a human problem it's important to remember that homosexuality is not some new idea or new problem. Sometimes when we're facing things that are um, counter to the Bible and maybe the culture seems to be embracing something that's significantly more counter to the scriptures, we, we, we act like it's a new thing. Like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do with this new issue? There is absolutely, it is literally as, as old as, as humankind. I mean, it goes all the way back. It has always been the eventual result of humanity who turns from God. doesn't mean that everybody goes headlong into homosexuality, but it means that humankind that turns from God will every time. It's always been the eventual result of humanity who turns from God. Some members practice homosexuality, while many more give approval to those who do. It was a significant problem before the flood. It was a significant problem very shortly after the flood. It was a problem in Sodom and Gomorrah, it was a problem in Babylon, it was an issue in Assyria, it was an issue in Egypt, it was a very significant issue in Rome where this is being written, where the letter of Romans is being written, and it's an issue in our world today. It's nothing new. However, the legislation regarding homosexuality, the law regarding homosexuality and so-called homosexual marriage, has changed for the first time in the history of our country since we started Romans 1. Do you see that for what it is? So while it isn't new in America, the approval of it is increasing at an unprecedented rate, and the approval of it within the church is increasing at an unprecedented rate. Why? It's the result of more and more of Adam's offspring believing the lie that we get to establish what's normal. That's why that's happening. The belief of this lie, I'm going to take God establishes what's normal, creator through creation establishing what's normal, I'm going to let go of that. And I'm going to hold tight to we establish what's normal, what's natural. So that leads us to our third truth, which might be kind of obvious at this point. Natural equals marriage between one man and one woman. Natural is heterosexual monogamy. Marriage between one man and one woman. Any sexuality that might exist is designed by God to exist within that boundary. Anything outside of that boundary is not considered natural. Natural is marriage between one man and one woman. There's nothing more natural than man and woman desiring each other and following God into marriage as an expression of love and a commitment to each other and to God who created marriage. We have to remember that marriage wasn't our idea either. The first, heaven, the first father to walk a bride down the aisle was a heavenly father who walked Eve down the aisle to the side of Adam. And the result was, I want to write a song about it. i want going to say some love poetry. And it was a beautiful occasion, and it is completely, beautifully, wonderfully natural. As well, what is natural fulfills that cultural mandate that we saw in Genesis 1. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. It fulfills the cultural mandate. Nature continues, humankind continues through what is natural, which is marriage between a man and a woman. So the lie is this, what's natural is my passions. There's this truth that what is natural is marriage between a man and a woman, and the exchange of idolatry is to let go of that and hold tightly to the lie, natural equals my passions what I want, when I want it. With each of these progressions, we see those dishonorable passions giving way more and more in each exchange to unnatural movement. The way that our world currently tries to explain this in a way um, that's palatable is the phrase love is love. Love is love. You may have heard it. This is a statement that our culture has created to make the unnatural seem natural. Love is love. A statement created by our culture to make what is unnatural seem natural. It goes something like this. The heart wants what the heart wants. The thinking is is along these lines. If I love someone of the same sex, there's nothing wrong with that. It's natural. I was born like this. Love is love. Lady Gaga, one of her biggest hit songs, is born this way because so many people identified with it. Love is love. But here's the thing. Nobody really believes that love is love. I'm convinced that there is not a single person that actually believes that because everybody has boundaries. They draw the boundaries in different places, but everybody has boundaries somewhere, Love is love isn't isn't this true statement that just applies to whatever we want and nobody believes it. When a spouse gives way to the solicitations of the flesh and walks out on their family for someone else, leaving a wake of heartache, we don't say, love is love. It's ridiculous. When we witness homes torn apart and children alienated from their parents because one chose to not honor the marriage vows and one chose to cheat and to leave and to be selfish, We don't look at those children and say, kiddos, love is love, because we don't believe it. Because it's not true. Because it's a lie that we've exchanged for truth. No, we call it adultery. We call it crossing the line. We call it unfair. We call it cheating. We call it a terrible decision, but we don't call it love. A more honest phrase is this lust is lust. That's the honest phrase. Remember, those who are saying love is love and trying to make what is unnatural seem natural with this phrase, they've already made the exchange. It's already a lie. So rather than love is love, what we really mean when it's said is lust is lust. I want what I want when I want it, and nobody has the right to say that I shouldn't have that because we've already changed the, the, the truth for a lie about a God who created us and might have some standards for the way that his creation works. As well, homosexuality is not only against nature in the sense that it isn't marriage between a man and a woman, but it is quite literally opposed to nature in that the practice of it can't preserve humankind. It's literally against nature. It's literally as unnatural as it can get. It can never lead to offspring. Yes, homosexual couples can, in our culture, adopt someone else's biological children, but it doesn't ever lead to biological children. It can never lead to fruit. It's unnatural. With each exchange, we see these dishonorable passions giving way more and more to unnatural movement, unnatural relations, unnatural actions. One scholar says humankind is in a frightening dilemma. Instead of being the pinnacle of creation, it is its destroyer. Instead of living in moral, intellectual, and spiritual purity, it lives in darkness and defilement. It was promised that it would become like God, but it has become the very opposite and is under condemnation. In its condition of exile, humanity needs a savior. As we see these exchanges being made under the umbrella of idolatry, my hope is that it causes and creates compassion in us. Sometimes Christians are called bigoted because they are. Sometimes Christians are called bigoted because they're just standing firmly in the truth and their intolerance will not be tolerated. When we see this exchange happening, my hope for us as a church is that it would create compassion in us because what we see is people sitting in the darkness with a fistful of lies. That's what we're looking at here. People who are sitting in the darkness with a fistful of lies, screaming slurs at them does not help. Big signs with inappropriate words does not help. There's people sitting in darkness with a fistful of lies, and there's, n- there's no hope in that fistful of lies. These passions that exist because of idolatry passions that every single person can relate to. The passions that exist because of idolatry, whether it's lustful passion, like we talked about last week, whether it's selfish passions, maybe it's homosexual passions, covetous passions, whatever it is, they're there because of the fall. And what we have to remember is that there's two options, as we picture God holding the tether and us in a, as, as the boat in this river that is raging with death and destruction and he's holding on to it, option one is to, re- to, to, to continue in the way of Adam, to, to disagree with or ignore the truth, to keep ma- making those exchanges of truth for lies. And option number one is receiving the wrath of God and being given up to your dishonorable passions. That's option one. But the beautiful thing here this morning is that we're not only left with one option when we find ourselves with dishonorable passions because of the fall. The beautiful thing is that there's an option, too, where we repent of the way of Adam. We allow Christ to absorb our wrath And rather than being given up to our dishonorable passions, we're redeemed out of them. We are made clean. We are new creations. That is a reality and a hope for anybody who might be struggling with the kind of dishonorable passions and unnatural movement that we're talking about this morning. Romans 5, 17 and 19 says this. It is good news. For if because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. For as by one man's obedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the, ben- the many will be made righteous. There is not one person here who is struggling with anything that cannot be made righteous in Christ. So our definition has to be clear. Homosexuality is a dishonorable passion which is contrary to nature. It's the result of idolatry. So we have a few application points that we're going to end with this morning. I want us to have a clear picture of this because our first application point is this. You can't hold on to the truth and the lie at the same time. It's an impossibility. You can't hold on to both. It just doesn't work. Remember that, that imagery of when we let go of that truth, we hold on to that lie. But if you let go of that lie, you hold on to the truth. But you can't hold on to both at the same time. There are many who claim to love Jesus and their homosexual lifestyle. And there are many who say to those struggling, that's okay, you can have both. But you can't hold on to the truth and the lie at the same time. Your identity cannot be homosexual and redeemed at the same time. You may struggle with same-sex attraction. I think that's a struggle that some people might be born with. But your only hope is to call it a dishonorable passion and to trust Jesus to help you to fight against the temptations of the flesh. In doing so, there are many who have found redemption and healing." There's a book that I wanted to show you all, some of you all are reading it, but it's by Rosaria Butterfield. It's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, and um, she is a former lesbian who was a professor in uh, queer theory and literature and and, um, some other things having to do with culture. And this book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, can help us to see the importance of not telling people that you, hold, you can hold both the lie and the truth at the same time. Um, some months ago, not long, just a few months, um, uh, Jen Hatmaker wrote a blog essentially saying just that. She wrote a blog saying to those who are struggling, who want, who want to hold on to the lie and the truth at the same time, she wrote a blog saying, your marriage can be holy. Your homosexual marriage can still be Holy. They can still go through a process of sanctification. Jen is not a terrible person. She's a very winsome, likable, kind, friendly person. But she told a bunch of people who are struggling, you can have both. You can hold on to the truth and the lie. It's, it's not actually an exchange is, is what's being said here. And this Rosaria Butterfield wrote a response to that. Some of you may have read it, some of you may have not, but I wanted to write her response because it gives us an idea of the danger of acting as though there's not really an exchange being made. She said this, If this were 1999, the year I was converted and walked away from the woman and lesbian community that I loved, instead of 2016, Jen Hatmaker's words about the holiness of LGBT relationships would have flooded into my world like the balm of Gilead. How amazing it would have been to have someone as radiant and knowledgeable, humble, kind, and funny as Jen saying out loud what my heart was shouting, Yes, I can have Jesus and my girlfriend. Yes, I can flourish both in my tenured academic discipline of queer theory, English literature, and culture, and in my church. My emotional vertigo couldn't find normal once again. She goes on to say, Maybe I wouldn't need to lose everything to have Jesus. Maybe the gospel wouldn't ruin me while I waited and waited and waited for the Lord to build me back up after he convicted me of my sin, and I suffered the consequences. Maybe it would go differently for me than it did for Paul and David and Daniel and Jeremiah. Maybe Jesus could save me without afflicting me. Maybe the Lord would give me some respectable crosses and some manageable thorns. She says, today I hear Jen's words, words meant to encourage and not discourage, to build up and not tear down, to defend the marginalized, not to broker unearned power. And she says, a thin trickle of sweat creeps down my back. If I were still in the thick of my battle over the indwelling sin of lesbian desire, Jen's words would have put a millstone around my neck. That's a reference to the Gospels where Jesus says that rather than causing one of the children To stumble by lessening the commands, it would be better for you to have a millstone put around your neck and be drowned in the sea. The millstone is regularly a picture of an unbearable burden of death. Millstones are thousands of pounds used to crush grain. They're huge. We're not talking about putting a rock necklace around someone's neck. We're talking about putting something that's like five boat anchors around someone's neck and putting him in the water. It's an unbearable burden of death. And she says, had I heard what she said when I was in the midst of my struggle that I, it's not an exchange and I can hold on to both, it would have been a millstone around her neck. It would have caused her to stumble. It would have gotten in the way of her coming to Christ, being made clean and being made new. The second application is this. We can't speak the truth in love if we're not standing firmly in the truth. Standing firmly in the truth takes discipline. In Philippians, which we studied this last Wednesday, we're reminded that our love must be informed and discerning. As Paul is in prison and he's praying for this Philippian church, he says, my prayer for you is that your love would be coupled with knowledge and discernment, that it would be an informed love. This means that we know others and we know the truth and we speak the truth in love. And I want to offer that speaking the truth in love just, doesn't just mean the way that you speak it. I think it's the environment that you speak it. Just because you're a Christian doesn't necessarily give you the right to just go up to a stranger who's struggling with homosexuality and sharing the gospel with them. Something that we've seen all throughout Romans and many other books is that the forward movement of the truth is intensely relational. Relational. It's very relational. That means that there should be times where we're befriending others, where we're showing love to others, having them in our home, having people in our homes that don't just look and talk and think like us so that we can speak the truth in an environment of love, speaking truth to someone who has no doubt that you love them. Love is far more than, if that's true, love is far more than affirmation because sometimes affirmation can be a millstone, right? We just read it from a personal testimony. Sometimes affirmation can be a millstone, and I want us to clearly see this this morning. The LGBT community is built on affirmation. I affirm you. I affirm you. Whatever you want. The heart wants what the heart wants. Love is love. There's no scrutiny, no accountability. It is built on affirmation to such a degree that there are people who are actively involved in the LGBT community who are not homosexuals or lesbians because it's just so affirming. Some of the nicest, most encouraging people I've ever met in my life. But sometimes affirmation can be a millstone. So love, being spoken in truth, speaking the truth in love, is far more than affirmation. As well, speaking the truth is very relational. Like I said just a second ago, we don't wait to befriend struggling sinners until they've gotten everything figured out. So there's two things to remember here. The first one is this. To sit here with this definition and say homosexuality is dishonorable passion that's contrary to nature, that's the product of idolatry. It's it's a lot easier to sit with that in theory, and it's much harder to speak when there's a loved one in front of you telling you that that's what they're struggling with. Or a loved one in front of you just saying, this is who I am, and I'm not going to fight it anymore. A loved one coming out of the closet. A loved one claiming the identity that they're not meant to claim it's much harder to speak the truth and love in those circumstances. So the encouragement and the application this morning is in order to speak the truth and love, we have to be standing firmly in the truth. Because if we try to field some of these questions and field some of these realities just on the fly, and we don't have God's word, and we don't know really what it says, we'll fumble. And we don't want to lighten anything because we don't want it to be a millstone for someone else. The second thing here is that we have to raise our children to know the truth. Yes, we have children's church as an option for some of our kids, but some of them are sitting in here. It's fitting to speak the truth to your children so that they know what it is before someone else speaks the exchange that's been made for a lie. They have to know what the truth is so that when they engage lies, they know how to speak the truth in love. They know how to stand firmly in the gospel as those, as we said first thing this morning, who are equipped and ready to go and do the work of God in their setting. So we don't hide words and biblical realities from our children. Yes, there's certain ages where there's parts that are more appropriate to talk about. But we have to raise our children to know these truths because I guarantee you, if you just ask your kid a few more questions, you'll likely find out they know a whole lot more than you realize. If you haven't already gotten there. So we have to show love by speaking the truth in love, by standing firm in the truth and leading our children to do the same. Our third application point this morning is that the gospel's the power. Trust it. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Trust it. As believers, we have to trust that the gospel will do its work. As winsome and convincing as you may be, you can't save anyone. Sometimes when we think about evangelism, we think, all right, if I say this in this way, I know that they're going to say this. And we get all up in the apologetics and we're like, okay, I can do this. They'll say this. I'll say this. Boom, they love Jesus. Their life is changed in five minutes. I, I, I nailed that. You're not the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is. We have to trust the gospel to do its work. So here's what you can do you can speak that power of God unto salvation. To those who might be struggling with what to believe regarding such matters. And then you watch that power go to work and you love them and you walk with them and you be patient and you answer questions because rarely do people completely do a 180 degree change over the course of one conversation. It, it happens but very rarely. That's not what we're called to when we're called to evangelism and loving others and showing love towards strangers. One conversation. we showed called to trust the gospel to do its work. Trying to adjust the gospel to accommodate an ever-growing community of people who want to claim to be both Christian and homosexual is like, this is a weird example, but just go with me. It's like trying to get your refrigerator to work better by unplugging it. Like if there's a problem and you're like, I think I can fix it, I'm just going to take it out of the power source. It makes no sense. It's kind of a silly example but my refrigerator turned off while I was sitting here reading this, and I was like, that's kind of like what it is. It's like, it's like well, we have this power, but we want to change it to make it work better. You, you can't change it to make it work better. The gospel is what the gospel is, and it is the power of God unto salvation. We don't adjust it to accommodate changing views of our culture. That's foolishness. And the fourth thing is this. The gospel takes time. It's foolish to take a letter written to believers and impose the same expectations on the unbelieving. Here's a letter written to a church that has all the things that a church is supposed to have in place. They have struggles, but they're working. To take a letter written to a church and go to unbelievers and say, you got to do this, is completely missing the point. The gospel takes time. Our message is not stop doing the bad stuff and follow Jesus. Rather, it's a message that clearly communicates the human problem by sharing the gospel allowing it to do its powerful work, and then continuing to walk with people as they learn what it means to be holy. This process can take years. Let's consider Paul, who's writing this letter. When Paul first heard the gospel, he violently persecuted those who were speaking it. He became one of those who excelled in Judaism to such a point that he would literally suppress the mouths, suppress the ones who were speaking truth thereby deserving the wrath of God. And it was only in time that Paul changed and the gospel did its work. The point is this. Without Jesus, nobody can win the battle against any sin. So without Jesus, nobody can win the battle against homosexuality. We speak the truth in love. We stand firm in that truth. We have to know it well so that we can bring it to those who are sitting in darkness with a fist full of lies. The last part of this verse in Romans 1 says, the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. When I read that shameless acts, it hit me kind of funny because you may not have seen it, and I didn't see it at first, but I was kind of looking at it and looking at the words, trying to understand it. It's like, why does it say shameless? That's completely shameful. Why does it say "shameless"? Why does it say they're committing shameless acts? Why, in a text that is calling everything exactly what it is, does it not call the act what it is? And it's because it's actually being very particular. It seems that they should have been shameful, but the people committing the acts are believing a lie. So, to those people, what should be shameful isn't shameful, it's shameless. The text didn't deviate from the plan. The text is saying they're committing acts that should have been shameful. But because they've exchanged the truth for a lie, let go of the truth, and held tightly to a lie, they don't feel the shame that they're supposed to be sharing, they're supposed to be feeling. They're believing a lie. Truth is the only thing that conquers lies, light is the only thing that conquers darkness. As we prepare to take this supper, I want to ask you to turn over to Hebrews 12. Turn with me to Hebrews 12. We've worked with a pretty simple definition because we need to be able to all walk out of here and take it with us into our week. I came to Hebrews 12 for the supper because as I was thinking through this sermon, I thought, I don't think I've ever had more input on different things that I could say on any sermon that I've ever preached. There's so much that's written, so many books. I got so many... Um, pieces of input from, from friends and from family members. Oh, you should talk about this. Oh, what about this? Oh, what about this? Well, what about... And there's all these things that really when it comes down to it, if we're going to do expository preaching and stick to what the verse says, there's a lot that we leave out. And so there's all these different dynamics that are at play. There's all these realities that we can observe and talk about and apply truth to. And there's lots of different verses that talk about how to do that. But that's not what our time is for this morning, which is why I'm going to Hebrews 12. For the supper, it gives us a couple of things that are very helpful. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted if you stand firmly in this truth about what is natural and what is dishonorable i i firmly believe it's not going to be getting any easier anytime soon so if you're a believer who wants to love others by speaking the truth in love it's likely that you'll be mocked, ridiculed, or rejected at some point in time. And if you're a person who's struggling with same-sex attraction and considering believing the lie of homosexuality, when you make those changes, one of the things that is heartbreaking as we read this book is, man, it was, it was a life change. There were lots of things that had to change for her to follow Jesus. And for you, as you aim to stand firm in the truth and walk in this newfound uh, redemption, you'll likely be mocked and ridiculed or rejected. So these verses in Hebrews are encouraging to us to consider him, consider Christ who hung on a cross to bear the wrath that was deserving to sinners. All of us deserve God's wrath. And as Christ hung on the cross, the wrath of God was put on Jesus. That's a picture of propitiation is the word. Jesus is our wrath absorber. And the death that he died on the cross, naked on a cross, was not only about death and it was also about shame. Shame. And Jesus hung there and bore the wrath of God. And it says that he despised the shame. And he adored the cross. And he did it so that we could be encouraged, so that we could be brought to God, and that we can look to him when we're growing weary or faint-hearted as we look around at the culture that is saying things over and over again where they're letting go of the truth and they're holding on to the lie. The second encouragement that we have in Hebrews as we take the supper. The supper is a supper of fidelity. It's a supper of encouragement. It's a supper of looking back, and it's a supper of looking forward. But the thing we know about the, the Lord's Supper, as we gather at the table, as we take the elements, is that we are sitting in a place at that table because we have Jesus' place at that table. His righteousness is counted as ours, otherwise we would not have fellowship with God. Here's the encouragement this morning. There's more room at the table. There's more room at the table. It should be an encouragement to you as we see a culture that is largely believing a lie and leading others to believe a lie. We're going to talk next week about the debased mind that not only gives, not only um, knows that these things are wrong, but they give approval to those who are doing such things. As it seems almost hopeless, like things are spiraling and running out too far in front. Please remember, as we take the supper this morning, there's more room at the table. As long as an individual has a borrowed breath, There is an opportunity for repentance and redemption that is found in Jesus Christ alone. And they will hear that news if the feet of of us take that news to them and speak that truth to them in love. So this morning as we distribute the elements, I want you to be encouraged that you have a spot at the table. And remember that there are more spots at the table.